Hey there. Welcome to episode 5 of ATL in 29, the podcast that looks at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta, Georgia. I'm so pleased today to have on my favorite 76ers writer, Sean O'Connor of Liberty Ballers. On today's episode, we'll give a nod to Steph Curry and his 13 three-pointers versus New Orleans and talk about the past and future of the NBA's single game and single season three-point records. We'll also talk about the phenomenon that is 76ers center Joel Embiid, as well as the Hawks making a tweak to their approach to offensive rebounding. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's get started. We're here with Sean O'Connor, who is a writer for Liberty Ballers, which is the 76ers site for SB Nation. Sean, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start you off with our 100 to 200 segment where I ask you for a controversial or maybe just semi-controversial opinion. We're going to score it on a scale from 100 to 200 with 100 being on the mild side and 200 being a little bit more scorchy. What do you have for us? Okay, so the Sixers uh, haven't won a game in, in October or November since 2013. They're 0-6 to start the year with multiple close game losses mixed in with blowouts. Um, they haven't had improvement in their win column since their first year under Brett Brown as coach, and they make the same constant late game mistakes seemingly game after game, even though they all appear in different ways. So my hot take, uh, my scorching hot take, is that uh, Brett Brown should be relieved of his duties as Sixers coach. Where do you think I rate that on the 100 to 200 scale? Oh my, that's a tricky one, because you know I think he's a good coach. And I, you know, I think he he prioritizes the right things when it comes to coaching. But at the same time, you look at what's happening to the Sixers this year, and it just—it's so dicey. So I, I would put it as like almost right in the middle, maybe like one forty-seven or something like that. Okay, that 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 was what I was expecting you to say. I actually think it's a hotter take than it should be. Okay. Um, as weirdly as I put it, um, as so uh, so poorly in Brett's favor, the way I worded the question, I feel like that's what people are going to focus on when they look for his eventual firing. And honestly, um, I wouldn't be surprised. He's a holdover from a different regime. Uh, he is popular with uh, with ownership for now, but if the losses keep mounting, he's likely suddenly won't be. But he was brought here as a developmental coach. Um, the Sixers have. You know, they've made some progress developing players over time, and really he's doing what he should be, which is funneling everything through Joel Embiid and making everything else secondary. Um, and again, this is another, I know it's considered a building year, but it's still we're still in a rebuilding project. And I think that what he does well is, and, and what he puts up with and what he has put up with for this going on four years of, of relatively bad basketball I don't think they should fire him because I have a hard time finding somebody who will prioritize on the right things like him. So I actually wrote down 172. Okay. Uh, hotter than not, um, but also I could see the merit for firing him, if that makes sense. So I don't think it makes sense to do it, but I can see why people would think that. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I think the ownership thing is one of the big things that makes it less controversial. Uh, but you're right. I mean, they they seem to be running everything through Embiid, and if you look at what's there on the roster, it's hard to argue that anything else would be appropriate. Exactly. 
All right, well, we're going to come back to Embiid later. But one of the first things that I wanted to talk about was uh, Steph Curry's three-point records. He made a ridiculous 13 three-pointers last night. And, uh, you know, I, I went back and I, I dug through the uh, dug through the record book using the great website Basketball Reference. Basketball was, Reference should be a paid site. It's, it's such a great resource. <laughs> it's not fair to them. It's absolutely amazing. And so, you know, with Basketball Reference and, and then a couple of basketball archives, I pieced together sort of the uh, the history of the single-game three-point record from 1980. You know, 79-80 was the first season up to now. And so uh, let's let's mm-hmm. let's uh, let me just give you a little bit of the history, and then we'll project maybe where you think this record will go in the future. So it started in the first season. I was very surprised by this. The very first season of the three-point shot, Rick Barry made eight three-pointers in a game. He Jeez, was most teams didn't even take eight at that point. Really? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I think I saw somewhere that the Hawks made thirteen for the entire season. So. Rick Barry making eight in a game was, was quite a bit. And he's 35 years, he was 35 years old at the time. He was playing for the Houston Rockets. And he'd seen the three-point shot before because he'd played in the ABA. So he'd seen, you know, at least some version of the shot before. And what I was impressed by was that Barry in that season, he took a three-point attempt every nine minutes he was on the court. Gotcha. So he took probably, I guess, four per game or so, right? Because, I mean, they played a lot of minutes back then. Well, so, Barry was 35 years old, so I think uh, he was taking like Barry. maybe. Yeah, he was older. So I think he was taking like <laughs> three and a half a game or something like that, or three a game, playing like 20, in the high 20s in minutes or something like that. So that record stood for an entire decade. As I was digging, I found out that uh, current NBA referee Leon Wood had seven three-pointers in a game in 1987 you know he's kind of a journeyman so that kind of came yeah. out of nowhere but you know 10 years after Barry set the original record Dale Ellis had nine in the game so it took it took a whole decade uh, for it to get to that point and I think if you look at the history of the three-point shot like the first season people were kind of open to the idea that, that you could do something with this shot and then in the early 80s it kind of actually went down before it went back up so it took a decade before Dale Ellis got to nine, and then Michael Adams tied that. And then Brian Shaw, who I don't remember as being a particularly good three-point shooter, was the first to yeah. get to ten, which which really surprised me. And Joe Dumars tied it, and George McLeod tied it. So this is 1993. And then another three years go by, and Dennis Scott gets to 11 in 1996. That's not surprising. Dennis Scott liked to shoot threes basically more than I like to do anything. Right. And one of the things working in Dennis Scott's favor was he did it in the era of the shortened line. Mm, yeah. So that kind of distorts the records a little bit. And then we wait another seven years, and I don't think anybody ever tied 11 until Kobe got to 12, which, again, you know, kind of right. like Brian Shaw, you have a guy who was, you know, an obviously a name player, a bigger name than Brian Shaw, but not a person who is necessarily known as a great three-point shooter. Yeah, Kobe Kobe got some volume behind him, though, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Especially last year. Yeah. So yeah. then, okay, that's 2003, and that, you know, Kobe's record stood until last night. So 13 years, 
just to get that one extra three-pointer. And then in that time, Danielle Marshall tied it and Steph tied it. But then Steph broke the record to get it all to himself at 13. So, you know, I wanted to sort of think about, you know, what's the future of this record? Like, if you look at Wilt Chamberlain's scoring record, you know, he got to 100 points in a game. And at that point, it was just like, yeah, you can't really get more than that. You know, it's just at some point you sort of max out. Or even if you don't max out, you get to a point where any sort of increase is going to be really incremental. So if we look back on this 25 years from now, what do you think the record for most threes in a game will look like? Well, I guess we have to that we have to somehow project um, like what types of players are able to set these three point records. Like before, it was all no names, right? Like I looked up Brian Shaw's three point numbers because I didn't really think of him as a shooter at all when you were talking through it, and he averaged a th- one and a half three point attempts per game um, <laughs> over twenty three minutes. So him getting eight was the most outlier of outliers. I think that um, you could possibly have. So it may not necessarily be someone who is a high-volume three-point shooter like Steph Curry. It may just be someone that has the biggest aberration of their career, and it just happens to be hitting contested threes left and right. Um, Shaw, by the way, shot 30% from three um, for his career, too. So it wasn't like he was a high-percentage, <laughs> low-volume. It was low-percentage, low-volume, whereas Curry is both high-percentage and high-volume. So if you had to pick a favorite to say, would you pick like the field or somebody like Curry or Thompson, you'd probably actually say someone like Curry or Thompson just because they play on a team that encourages it more. Um, They also have the volume. They have the ability to get open shots because of their teammates, especially if they're on a hot night like Clay Thompson is very much capable of. I remember him scoring 37 points um, in a quarter uh, against the Sacramento Kings a couple of years back. And I, I've never seen anything like that, but you can imagine doing that over a whole night. How many threes could he have? Um, and the league as a whole is shooting more threes. So I feel like that may actually end up giving everybody more opportunity to try to break this record. Um, Curry took 17 last night, if I'm not mistaken, um, to get his 13 makes, which again is pretty ridiculous. But, um, just for context, uh, the Sixers and Cavs played on, Saturday, this past Saturday. Okay. And each team shot 38 threes. Um, they each made exactly 14. Um, that was the first time that any team, any pair of teams ever each took more than 36 threes in a game. Um, wow. The, the last time, the only time 36 happened was actually last year when the Warriors and Trailblazers did it. Not too surprising when you consider the two teams involved, but th- that was the first time that anyone's taken that many in a game. And the NBA is going to going toward a point where um, the number of three point shots is like steadily rising per by year. And uh, there's one NBA development league team, the uh, Rio Grande Valley Vipers, who are the uh, D League uh, affiliate for the Houston Rockets. Um, they're pretty famous for running a high pace um, or a high pace system where roughly half of their shots are threes, and they take about I think like 50 per hundred possessions. They take like half. Okay. Um, and they end up with game. So if the NBA decides that they want to move toward that extreme, then the likelihood of somebody making 13 threes all of a sudden goes up. So I think questions like the like this, you have to determine whether or not something like taking 13 or making 13 is going to be more likely because of the way that the league is trending. Okay. And I would anticipate that the league is trending toward taking more threes. So you're going to have more potential games where people can hit 13, 14, 15 threes. Um, and with players like Steph Curry who can hit threes, like even while they're contested, 
Um, I don't see like a necessary limit to how many they can make. I mean, I can like, I, honestly, if he's on fire and he just takes as many threes as he can, if he pulls a Kobe and decides he wants to go out, <laughs> wants to go out on a 60 point game, like Steph could take 30 or 43s. I mean, like, cause he, he'll just like catch 30 feet from the rim and just launch it. And he still hits 40% of those. So like there's a, there's a pretty decent chance that the 13 is not going to stand for that long. And I think there's more chances in the future to then break that record. I sort of agree with you. The way I thought of it was like if for one player playing, you know, let's say 30, 38 or 40 minutes, you know, what's the greatest number of threes that they could even attempt. Mm. And I was figuring that, you know, if you had somebody that just got hot and really just took all the threes that they wanted to, maybe not to the point of like Kobe's 60 point game where he was taking literally every shot. 50 field goal attempts. Yeah, that was ridiculous. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, something where it's forced a little bit, but maybe not forced to like the caricature extreme. I right. would figure like maybe 24 or 25 attempts where you just take almost every shot that you're going to take from three. And then, you know, on that kind of a night where you're taking so many shots just because, you know, you're shooting well, you know, you're not going to see somebody shoot 90 or 100% on those attempts. I'm figuring, like, for one good hot night, maybe they make 70 or 80% of their threes. So I, I think that it's realistic that somebody could get to, say, 17, maybe 18. Yeah, that's fair. I, I just looked at the most three-point field goal attempts in a game. Um, you could probably guess this, but J.R. Smith has the record right now. Uh, <laughs> Is that the night he had 11? Didn't he have a game where he had 11? Um, I don't know if he had uh, three. He may have had um, 11 three-point makes, but he took 22 attempts oh, wow. in a game at the end of 2014. Um, Kobe's goodbye game last year had 21. Um, Mighty Mouse had 21 at some point somehow. Um, but yeah, I mean, 24 seems reasonable if you, if you have an even better shooter than Jr. who he likes taking threes when they're contested because they're more fun that way. Um, I can imagine, I can imagine someone like him, like no, no repercussions. If it's a late season game with the Cavs, LeBron sitting out, I can imagine him taking even probably even more than 24. I, yeah. Now that you say those numbers to give it context, <laughs> I, I could see at yeah, 28, 30, Yes. So, so I think there's I think there is some some growth potential in that record. All right. So, let's uh, let's transition a little bit to the single season record. So I looked it up in the original season. San Diego Clipper Brian Taylor had 90 in the first season of the three point shot. Daryl Griffith had 91. Four years later. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and then the first player to break 100. Uh, he was actually one of three players to break 100 in that season, uh, was Danny Ainge. He had 148 in 1988. So he made 148 threes. And so uh, this was all done with the original line, the line that still exists today. The first person to break 200, do you know who it was? I'll give you a hint. Shut. It was the Knicks, and it was the first year they moved the line in. Mm-hmm. Who do I remember from those next teams? Is it John Starks? It is. All right. John Starks had 217 threes in 1995. That was the first year that they moved the line back. Mm. So it went from 90 in the first season, and then Starks 
finally got it to 200, but, you know, sort of with an asterisk. And then no one broke 300 for the longest time. In fact, the first person to make 300 was the first person to make 400 in the same season. It was Steph making 402 last year. Right, yep. So that's, you know, about almost five a game. Yeah, it's insane. I'm looking at the leader list right now. He's got the top two, and then Clay Thompson has three, and then Steph has four. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's like That's every insane. it's like every season. You know, there there are just more threes being shot. Like if you look at mm-hmm. the record for team attempts in a season or team makes in a season, it's like a new a new leader every year. It's like every year the record gets set, and so they're taking more and more of them. So. You know, if you look at that record, what do you think the most three-pointers that one player could put up in a year is? So Steph had 402 makes last year. Correct. Basically going all out because they were trying to get the win record. Um, I don't see him hitting that again this year. I mean, that seems like such an outlier because the next highest, I mean, he has the, he has two of the three next highest totals as well. But it's such an outlier compared to what he was at before that it almost seems like there's some space to fill in before we really start moving the 402 up. Okay. Um, and Steph took, I think, 11 threes per game last okay. year, something something like that. So you would have to hit, in order to hit more than 400, you have to shoot something like 45% on 11 shots a game and play every game. <laughs> um, it's preposterous. Uh, and so I could see it moving upward. Um but I'm not sure I see it anytime soon. Like that seems like a harder one to hit than an individual game record, just because there's so many, so much volume, so many games, um, and playing very hard every game too. You would you would have to hit, yeah, because 82 games, 402, it's five per game. Like I I I don't see it moving anytime soon. I could see it happening, but I don't see that anytime soon. So what do you think it would look like? if we go even longer into the future, like if we said 20 or 30 years from now, what do you think that mm-hmm. record will look like? Do, will, will it change or have we sort of reached the peak? Yeah. I, the problem is that Curry is such a, like you, we've never seen anything like Steph Curry, right? Like he shoots 40% on contested shots. He shoots 50% on uncontested shots. He has range out the 35 feet. If anybody could set a record like that, it feels like it would be him. Um, and not only that, but he has a way to get himself open that other people don't. Um, the only way I could see it happening is if someone manages to shoot more than 11 per game, like they, they increase the number of attempts. Right. And it's hard to see that happening unless you have a person who has Steph Curry's handles, but is also taller. So I, I mean, even 20, 25 years down the line, that seems like a hard record to top. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I disagree with you. I just, I do think that there will be people that take more attempts that, that you know, I, I don't know. I'm sort of of the opinion that, that basketball players always get better. That if, if you look at the game now versus what it looked like 30 years ago, the players just by virtue of having learned from their predecessors, they get better. And I, I think the shooters are in the pipeline. I think there are kids watching Steph now that they go to a gym and all they do is shoot three-pointers. That's what they right. want to do. And so I think, you know, out of that pool of millions of kids doing that, there are going to be a few six, seven prodigies that come into the NBA <laughs> that can just do ridiculous things. I don't know. I think 25 years from now that there might be somebody that, that has 500 or 600. It wouldn't, wouldn't shock me. You know, taking maybe, you know, 
a great three-point shooter taking like 15 attempts a game or something and, and playing with a level of skill comparable or maybe even, dare I say, better than Steph. I mean, I think Steph's the greatest right. three-point shooter of all time, and it's not even close. But Yeah, it's not. I think I think the big thing, though, is that we have to see whether or not like the three-point stays at the same spot. Um, you know, kind of noted earlier with the line moving in um, in the early 90s, it did cause a spike in three-point attempts. Um, the NBA might get to a point where they're like, there's not enough variety in the game. There's too much three-point shooting. Right. Um, I don't see that anytime, like, really soon. But I could see that happening in the future because teams are learning more and more that they should get rid of the mid-range. I mean, the Hawks have done it for years. The Sixers have done it since Brett Brown has become the coach. They've Their first year, they were, I think, uh, number one at shots at the rim and threes and, like, had the lowest percentage of their shots in mid-range other than the Rockets, who are always number one. Um, and so I think as teams learn more and more how to do that, and the game becomes more homogenized. I feel like there might be some, some, um, some movement to maybe either move the three-point line back, widen the court, do something in order to make it so that there's more variety. Um, I see that potentially happening as well if it becomes a two-three-point reliant game, um, especially the way that the the Warriors play. It's it's almost unguardable, like because a lot of times they just shoot over you, even if you're in their face. They just don't have a way to to contest your shot. And so I see something like uh, movement in the other direction where people want to move the lines back or make the court wider, do something in order to make it so that there's more variety in the game, that the three-pointer isn't as prevalent rather than a continuation that the three-point line, um, basically the three-point line is so dominant that uh, teams that pretty much shoot the most threes uh, win games. I mean, there's a greater correlation between three-point attempts and offensive rating than I think any other statistic. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, or any other base statistics. So um, teams understand that three-point attempts are the way to go or to, to shoot the three. And once a team gets to the point where um, all they do is shoot threes, then I think at some point there's going to be action to try to curb that. I agree. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, you mentioned Rio Grande before. If, you know, if a team played that style of basketball, you mm-hmm. know, it might it might get to the point of. Uh, almost like what it was with the 76ers a couple of years ago where there was just cries for draft reform because of what the 76ers were doing. Exactly. If there was a team like Rio Grande playing in the NBA, playing that style of basketball, there might be the cries for, oh, this is a travesty. We've got to move the line back. Exactly. <laughs> but if you do that, you have to move the court. You have to make the court wider, which I think would be really exciting. Yeah, I think it would be too. It would make it an even faster game. Mm-hmm. Um, it would make three-point shooting harder. Um, I think it would move the emphasis back, maybe not toward post game, but toward trying to get the ball as close to the rim as possible. Um, there's going to be clusters with a game where there's different point values at the places that are closest to those scoring things. There's always going to be clusters around the three point line and around the rim, mm-hmm. but the NBA has got to make it so that the equation doesn't tilt exclusively toward threes um, or exclusively toward one or the other. They have to try to do something to make it more of a variety. I think one of the things that just fascinates me when, when I get up close to, to, to watching the Hawks practices or warm-ups or anything like that is the footwork, the little ballet dance of staying mm-hmm. in the corner in the three-point line with, you know, these size 14 and 17 and 18 feet. And they're, you know, they're trying to slip into these 36-inch little crevices where they've got to get their balance and catch the ball and set their feet and go up for a three-point shot. And it's just amazing to watch the precision. 
Um, you know, you, I see lots of instances this season where, you know, players go out of bounds trying to set up their three-point shot. And even still, I wonder how they don't do it more. Like, it seems so easy to go out of bounds in such a tiny space when you're trying to do what they do. Yeah, especially when you have players coming out of the NCAA where I think they have a little bit more room in the corner. They're used to being able to take a step back before before driving into the lane when, on the kickouts. And uh, it's just um, it's something that it takes time to learn. I, I know people work on it. So, well, speaking of players yeah. that come out of the NCAA, we've we've waited a couple of years to see what Joel Embiid could do. Two long years. <laughs> and if, you know, if you're going to talk about the Sixers, the one really exciting topic when it comes to the Sixers is what is Joel Embiid going to do? What 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 is he capable of? I don't know. Like, there's so much he's capable of already. Like he's he's a little older than most rookies. He's like 22, so um, like physically he's probably he's probably done growing. Although we thought that before, and then he grew to be seven two without shoes on. So he's just gigantic. Um, but as you saw in, in the game, uh, the Hawks Sixers game from a couple weekends ago, like he's also able to pump fake at the three point line, drive by Paul Millsap, and finish with his left hand in traffic. Like no one's ever done that before. Like. Like nobody has had the three-point range and the post game and the finishing ability he does. Um, like he's just got at least something in every area. So he's got the shooting, he's got post game, he's got defense, he's got pretty good defensive instincts despite picking up basketball. I think at age sixteen, um, he's seven foot three. He can put the ball on the floor. Um, he he still has a lot of things to work on, like related to those skills. Uh, like for instance keeping his head up, um, not turning the ball over. But those are all things that, like, after two years off, you're willing to work on those. I mean, he's just – he's something, like, I've never seen before. Um, and I feel like I'm maybe too much of a hype man because, like, I'm literally comparing him to nobody, but, like, I've never seen anything like him. It's like he's got – like, I don't want to compare him to Hakeem because Hakeem had such better footwork and post moves in. Joel does at this point. Joel's being compared to modern-day NBA versus what Hakeem was compared to. But um, he could have the same type of impact as Hakeem, and that's about the biggest um, compliment I can give him. I agree. And I I think, you know, the one the one instance that you, you know, you could be a little bit critical, but, I mean, it's not – it's perfectly natural for a 22-year-old, and it was true for Hakeem too, is that, you know, once he figures out how to pass – Mm-hmm. the world is going to open up for him. Because like you mentioned in that Hawks game, he's he's pump faking 25 feet from the basket and driving past people. And it's just a ridiculous amount of skill that, that he has. But at the same time, you know, you saw as the game wore on, you could see people kind of cheat towards him. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he starts yeah. to pass, who's going to guard him one-on-one? Right, yeah, and... Teams were the Boston Celtics in his first game during preseason double teamed them like in the second quarter. Like <laughs> it was it was right away. They knew that they had nothing to stop him. They knew Al Horford was only six foot ten. They knew that Tyler Zeller was too slow. They knew that they couldn't do it alone. So they immediately started double teaming him and immediately the turnovers came. Um and he hasn't played organized basketball in two years before this. And he didn't see that much post-up action at Kansas. They intentionally limited his minutes. So um, a lot of the things he's seeing for the first time, he wants to make the right play. Um, It's not like Julio Okafor where there's a bit of a selfish streak there. 
Um, he wants to make the right play when he's in the post. He doesn't want to just go one on everybody and say, screw the consequences, I'm scoring here. He <laughs> wants to make the right play every time. Um, he just, it, it moves too fast right here. The game moves too fast for him right now on offense for him to make the right decision every time. Because we've seen how the Sixers like play around him and um, he's gotten better as the season has gone along. I think the, the Hawks game specifically, the minutes I was watching was kind of a low point for him when it came to court recognition. But as time has gone along, he's tried to make the passes. He just hasn't made them yet. He's not used to playing with a lot of the guys. So um, I think in turnovers and court recognition, um, he'll definitely get better over time. It's just a matter of how much time does it take. Is is he going to win Rookie of the Year? Uh, so long as he stays healthy. Um, there's nobody really up there that's playing as many minutes as he is other than, I think, Dario Saric right now. Um, and Saric has had an up-and-down year, but when people look at the Sixers, they're not saying, oh, look at that guy. Look at you. They're not pointing at Saric. <laughs> no. They're pointing at Embiid. Sure. So even if Embiid plays 60 games, which I think would be a victory in and of itself to have him play 60 games. Um, if he plays 60 games, I mean, he's getting a, He's playing 24 minutes per game right now, or at a max of 24, but he, he has like a 40% usage rate. <laughs> it's, it's obscene. A 40% usage rate for the Sixers. They're giving him the ball. They're prioritizing that he is the person to go to. Um, if he stays healthy, like even if Ben Simmons comes back, there, there wouldn't be a contest. Embiid would be rookie of the year. So you mentioning uh, usage rate and minutes limit brings me to a couple things. First of all, with the usage rate, how much of that is related to the teammates that he has around him? Would it be the same if, if there were more threats on the court with him? Or I. I, I tend to think that they, they do it as a point of development because they're really trying to get him as many touches as they can in the amount of time that he plays. So I think a lot of it is really that they just want to get him touches. I really think they're prioritizing what Embiid does, even though he may also be their best source of offense. I think that at times they, they just run every play for him just because they want to get, get him the ball and get him in situations in the limited time that he's on the court. Um, the Sixers have some decent offensive players around them. I know that they can run some more pick and roll with Sergio Rodriguez, use him as a decoy rim runner. They have typically three three-point shooters around him. So they'll run uh, Saric, Ilyasova, Covington, Henderson, a bunch of people who can shoot around them. And spread pick and roll should be like a viable option, but they really haven't gone to it. They've just prioritized dumping the bottom in the post and seeing if he could um, make reads or score on his own. Um, I think over time, it's, it's almost certainly going to go down um, just because a 40% usage rate for a center, like that's not sustainable nowadays. Um, there's going to be too much um, double teaming. There's going to be too much focus on preventing him from getting the ball. Other teams realizing that Embiid is like too good to let him score one-on-one are going to try forcing the ball away from him more and more often. Um, so I, I think it's a conscious effort to try to get them the ball as much as he can in his limited minutes. Well, and some, that, um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, some teams when when they have an interior threat that they you know want to negate or you know keep the ball from, they try to front. But but Embiid's there aren't many people two. that can front Embiid. <laughs> I mean, we saw Gobert against him last night, and you know Gobert could probably front him. I'm having a hard time picturing too many other people who could. Right. Yeah. There's. It's hard to, to keep him keep him the ball away from him. He's also very good at establishing post position. So a lot of times the Sixers they they're running a lot of the same offense they ran at the beginning of last year for Okafor rather than for for Embiid. Um, the problem is that um, Okafor really struggled at establishing position. He's a bit smaller 
not really in shape. Um, but Embiid is just seven foot two and hard to move. Like he's he's not real thin. Like like even Stephen Adams is having trouble bodying up against him. And Adams is one of the stronger guys you'll find. Martian Gortat during a preseason um, just really couldn't move him. So like it's hard to get the ball like to prevent him from getting the ball. Once he gets it, I think is really where teams are having success because they're forcing him to try to make plays out of double teams. Um, but if you don't double team, you're leaving your center on an island. So he's, he's forcing those decisions. Ultimately, when he gets better at passing, when he has more rush to be able to both reduce his usage rate and create more space for other people. You mentioned Okafor. I hadn't thought about him being sort of the, the tune-up act in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, sort of setting up the offense last year around Okafor in a way that sort of got them comfortable with doing the same for MB this year. I'm going to be sad if a decade from now, if that's his biggest contribution to the Sixers. Yeah, it, it honestly might at this point, but um, I'm hoping at some point he, he gets in shape that he uh, isn't injured for an entire off season, which I think really hurt him this past summer. And, um, and can be a more efficient scorer one-on-one, which is theoretically his best skill. Yeah, I don't want him to be the sacrificial uh, warm-up comic. Like at a stand-up comic, they send the first person <laughs> out and just kind of send them to slaughter, and then everybody's ready when the next person comes. I, I don't want that to be to be his future. Um, are, yeah, you know, ne- what neither are, do I. What are the things that the Sixers could do sort of transactionally in terms of personnel to, to make things better for MB going forward? The first thing will probably be seeing how he and Simmons work together because you would figure between the two of them, they're going to have the ball in their hands like a huge amount of the time on offense. Mm -hmm. So eventually you're going to look for players that fit beside those two. Um, Secondary creators, I think, will be a big factor because you want people who, when they get the ball kicked out to them, you don't want them to just stand there and shoot. You you don't want a – like just give you an example of a current sixer, Hollis Thompson. Um, Hollis is a – career almost 40 percent three-point shooter um which a lot a lot of people don't actually know he's he's been with the sixers for this is his fourth year and he shot nearly 40 percent every year as as a three-point shooter but once you close out on the three-point line he doesn't really have anything else to offer um his he has a weak dribble doesn't have a good first step um and can't really create on his own when he creates it's one step and then an off-balance jumper it's not pretty so you want people that could both shoot a little bit, but more importantly, I think you want people that could create when given the ball in a situation where they're not creating against a set defense like a point guard normally would, but against a defense where um, it's scattered because Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons is forced to double team somewhere or collapse the lane. You don't just want shooters. You want people who can um, create a little bit. Uh, Jared Bayless, who they signed um, to be their uh, quasi-point guard with Simmons, is probably a good example of that. I'm not his biggest fan, but Bayless, is, Bayless has been a good shooter the last couple of years and can create off the dribble, can defend his position reasonably well. Those are the type of guys that you want complementary to Simmons and Embiid. But you also want to see how Simmons and Embiid work together first because that's going to be priority because um, they're going to be responsible for creating so much of the offense themselves that you just want people that fit well with both of them together. That makes sense. You you got me. You got my mind wondering when you talked about Hollis Thompson. Why did this? Why did the Sixers? What was 
the motivation between, I'm sorry, behind making the Grant Ilyasova trade. If Ilyasova, I mean, your description of Hollis Thompson sounded exactly like the mm-hmm. description of Ilyasova, who it seems like you know, in every city that he goes to, we kind of have to carefully explain to people he can't be a small forward. He's a he's a power forward. He's I know he's six nine guy who can shoot threes. He's not a small forward. So if you have Thompson, why get Elias over? Is it just a matter of getting the asset that came with him, or? Yeah, well, Thompson's more of a three. Um, he's like six foot eight or so. Okay. He's not really good at anything that a three does other than shoot, but like he's theoretically a three. And whereas Ilyasova is a four, Grant Grant actually had made pretty good progress. This was his third year in the league, and um, uh, during training camp, he he showed off a a new mid-range to three-point jumper with uh, a lot more improved shooting motion. So okay. he seemed like a guy that had um, that had some ability to potentially progress in the system, but naturally he's probably more of a power forward than a small forward. And at 22, you need reps, you need development in order to like kind of realize your potential, especially when you're someone like Grant, who's got a lot of raw tools but not a lot of refinement. Um, he was number three on the depth chart behind Simmons and Sarge at this position. Okay. And whenever he was on the floor for the Sixers paired with him, beat Okafor, um, teams would clog the lane and just be willing to let him shoot. Um, while he was on the court, he wasn't exactly helping those other guys, even if he might be a better future asset than someone like Ilyasova. Um, the Sixers contention is that, Hey, we need as much shooting around in beat and Okafor as we can, especially when Simmons comes back. So they thought Ilyasova was a better fit for the current team, and then getting a first-round pick in addition to Ilyasova, no matter how like bad the first-round pick is, um, isn't a terrible return for somebody who wasn't going to get playing time when you had a full roster and who wasn't necessarily in your future plans. So um, I think that was the motivation for moving Grant. Ilyasova does theoretically help in the short term because of his shooting um, in place of Grant, replacing him one-for-one. But... I think, for the most part, Grant just didn't fit with what they're envisioning as supporting personnel to, to Embiid. Interesting. All right. Well, one of the other topics I invited you on to discuss was uh, sort of the trade-off between transition defense and offensive rebounding. And to sort of lead into this, I wanted to play this clip from, from Atlanta Hawk Mike Muscala talking about that trade-off. Last year you were 30th out of 30 teams. This year you're in the top 10. Uh-huh. Obviously part of that's Dwight, but Coach Budenholzer also said that there's like a tweak in the strategy or a tweak in the approach. What, what's different about your approach to offensive rebounding this year? Because I know you've had a few games where you've gotten some. Yeah, he's just stressing more to, for the 4 and 5 to crash. Uh, I think um, my first couple of years here, um, it was less of an emphasis. And uh, it was more about trying to get back in the business with that transition defense. But his, his, his message was that we should be able to do both, that we should be able to crash up into glass hard and be good in transition defense too. So, I mean, a huge part of it as well, like you said, but I think it's something that's the mindset too. Okay, so the Hawks last season had, you know, one of the worst offensive rebounding seasons in, in NBA history. They just really didn't go for offensive rebounds, and that kind of made sense with their personnel. If... Um, but they added Dwight Howard, and so now they have one of, you know, arguably the best offensive rebounders of all time. If you look at what he's done over his whole career, and so it makes sense for them to 
get more offensive rebounds. But it's interesting that the Budenholzer, I think, in more cases, is committing two players to offensive rebounders instead of one. Um, so you're seeing a little bit of that trade-off. Now, one of the questions I have for you, Sean, is, uh, is just in terms of numbers. So looking at the Hawks' numbers for a second here, they are scoring 4.1 points more per game off of offensive rebounds, and they're giving up 1.9 more points per game to opponents on fast breaks. So if we round that off and call it, let's say, 4-2, and two, is it worth it to go for – I mean, it, obviously it's worth it to go for more offensive rebounds if you're going to gain four points and give up two. But are there any other factors that you think come into play in a situation like that when trying to choose uh, what kind of strategy you want to apply to offensive rebounding? Yeah, so I, I think the biggest thing is that uh, offensive rebounding itself is not just a team strategy, but it's also an individual skill. So if you have somebody who uh, every every decision when you make when it comes to deciding who should whether you should go for offensive rebounds or get back on the fast break should depend on how well your players do each one. So it's both a philosophy individually um, as well as on a team level. So I could see where the Hawks are going. I could see what what Coach Budenholzer was is thinking. You have Dwight Howard, who is much better as an offensive rebounder, I think, than Al Horford was. Um, so when you have someone like and Al Horford plays more on the perimeter. So when you combine those two things, you, you may want to make the decision to kind of flip the switch, go for more offensive rebounding versus um, getting back in transition. And as more teams have gone small and more teams have gone and focused on trying to get back in transition to prevent easy baskets, um, it, it makes sense that teams may want to try – moving the equation the other direction, trying to move it to where they go for more offensive rebounds. Um, one example of like a, a team doing that, I think that really opened my eyes personally, was the um, was two years ago in the finals, Cavs' first edition where the Warriors won. Um, the Cavs were badly outmanned, um, and they ended up losing, I think, in, in six games anyway. But David Blatt, like for the first time that anybody had done it that postseason, decided to stick with his guns and stay big against the Warriors, who always play small and play best when they're small. And so we're just going to charge the offensive boards and then hope that by just using LeBron for every possession that we can win enough individual battles to make it a series. Um, the Cavs ended up losing that series despite – and they, they but they still, ended, I think, ended up winning two games despite not having Kevin Love, Kyrie Irving for the, for the balance of that series. So, and they did so because I think they they offensive rebounded about forty percent of misses, and I don't have the number in front of me, but I, I do know that the 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 rate of scoring after offensive rebounding is higher than your standard possession. Um, second chance points have a higher points per possession than standard possessions do. So, whereas fast break points on the other end, you do have a higher percentage of points per possession on fast breaks than you do in half-court offense. So it's really an equation. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Hawks rightfully have said, okay, we have somebody at Dwight Howard who individually is a fantastic offensive rebounder um, compared to what we had before, which were people who were good man defenders in the half-court um, who weren't as strong offensive rebounders. They decided to change their equation that way. I don't think there's a, a fast and uh, hard and set answer to that question. I know that Mike mentioned um, sending the fours and fives. I don't even know if that's exactly the right strategy. I think it may just be sending one or two very good offensive rebounders despite the position and using them to challenge. It may be harder for your bigs to get back in transition, 
if you're someone that's less athletic like Muscala compared to, say, Dwight Howard, it's easier for Dwight Howard to get back in transition because he's faster, um, lighter on his feet than someone like Muscala. So I think it's like a player by player decision. Just have to, it's a game. You, you, you try to make it so that each player maximizes their output. And then in the case of getting offensive rebounds and going back in transition, some players are just going to have more value if you get them back versus others where they're going to have more value if you have them crash the boards and then also try to get back as soon as possible. I agree. Yeah. I think one of the things for the Hawks is, you know, not only is it a change for their philosophy in terms of offensive rebounds, but I think part of it is just a a change in their philosophy for offense. Um, You know, with, when, you know, part of it is, you know, having Dwight in the offense means that Dwight is going to take more shots. And when Dwight takes more shots, his shots are going to be, the type that if they don't go in, they're not going to bounce 25 feet from the basket. Whereas, you know, if you take a three point shot, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, the, the rebound is like an outlet pass. If you don't get the offensive rebound, because it's coming so far the opposite direction. I think for the Hawks, you know, a lot of their misses, if they're coming from Millsap and Howard close to the basket, those are the prime opportunities for them to go get offensive rebounds. Whereas, you know, on a three pointer by Bazemore or Corver, I think they're a little bit more reluctant to to be as aggressive in those situations. That's true because threes do have longer rebounds. It doesn't make sense for people to crash the boards when the ball's going to bounce out further than where it's coming from. So yeah, and if you look at you know Dwight, my goodness, you know Dwight has five point two offensive rebounds per game this season. That's actually leading the NBA. And you mentioned Tristan Thompson before; he's second at four point two a game. But I. You know, part of part of Dwight's five point two, I would say at least one a game is just sort of you know when he tries a, a shot around the rim, misses it, and it comes right back to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of the Moses Malone offensive rebound. <laughs> yeah, the Moses Malone offensive rebound is more the the tip and then the miss and then the tip and then the miss and maybe like four in one possession. <laughs> uh, can only imagine Dwight uh, doing that. He does have he does have the second second jump to do that, but uh, maybe not as much as back in uh, his heyday with Orlando. So you mentioned uh, something that I think is important for the Hawks, too, is that I think if they get more offensive rebounds, that's such a huge opportunity for Korver. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to be one of the people trying to sprint back on defense, but he, you know, at the same time, there's going to be some recognition that if, if he thinks that his teammate's going to get an offensive rebound, you know, his sprint and his range, you know, he doesn't have to get to within 23 feet. He can shoot from 27, 28 feet. And so if he has some momentum going towards the basket and the pass is coming from directly underneath the basket, those are better three-point opportunities than the ones that he gets just in the regular half-court offense. Exactly. And, and transitioning to the Sixers, you're right. Uh, I want to say you mean you're right in general, but the Sixers are actually <laughs> almost an extreme case in terms of the quality of shots they're getting. They're, they're last in offensive rebound rate but they're getting a fair amount of points off the offensive rebounds that they do get. But what I'm surprised by when, when it comes to the Sixers is that, uh, you know, even though they're getting a, a decent amount of points out of them, somehow they're last in offensive rebound rate at 15% of their misses they're rebounding, and they're last in fast break points allowed. They're 30th. They're giving up 21.7 points per game in fast break. And the thing that surprised me is not only is that the worst, but it's the worst by four points. Memphis is is second to last. Jeez. 
at 17.7. So they're not only far from the mean, they're far from even their closest competitor in terms of how many fast break points per game they're giving up. So, you know, what do you, if you had to look at that trade-off and, you know, what they're doing right versus what they're doing wrong, what do you think about that particular situation? Well, obviously that's not good. (laughs) 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 They must all just be standing around the three point lines and just waiting for things to happen. No, uh, um, it it is interesting because I wanted to peg that. I knew the Sixers were bad at um, getting back on the fast break. And I've mostly attributed that to turnovers. So the Sixers, I think, are 28th in the league in turnovers right now. They're at about 18 a game. So it's not great. And their their opponents are only committing 12. So that's a big part of the reason why they're 0-6. They have five possessions that end up uh, in nothing more per game. But I have to interrupt. They could could be 2-4 and if they just eliminated a few fast breaks here and there. They lost, what, by 2 to Orlando? They lost by 1 to Cleveland? On the last possessions for for both games, they committed turnovers, though. Oh. (laughs) Yep. So... It happens. Um, but I think for a lot of it, for the fast breaks, um, and we talked a little bit about this beforehand, but um, the Sixers guards are very unathletic. Um, TJ McConnell especially, is, he tries hard. God bless him. But um, there's too many times per game where he's trying to chase his man down the court and has to like dive at him in order to try to prevent him from scoring. And, it, and those types of situations where uh, McConnell, Rodriguez, two unathletic point guards aren't that big, um, driving to the lane a lot to try to generate offense for the Sixers when Embiid's not the, the focal point. Um, that'll result in a lot of leakouts for guards. Um, that, that's and you combine that's it the with, key word, right? Guard, sorry to interrupt, but that's yeah. like if you look at what the word literally means, I mean, your guards are supposed to be your players that don't go underneath the basket. They sit back and they're supposed to be the ones that protect your basket to some extent. Exactly. Or there should, there should at least be somebody back to, to protect your basket. And the Sixers just too often um, have two on two or three on two breaks against them. And it's just um, like I think a lot of it is due to turnovers um, rather than laziness or not playing hard for Brett Brown or something like that. It's just they have too many live ball turnovers. Embiid himself is at like four and a half a game. Um, Guards double team him. Um, You would think that. At that point, if someone's double teaming them, that it wouldn't be uh, too terrible. Maybe they're stripping the ball, but a lot of his turnovers are on passes. They're live ball. They okay. lead di- directly to the opposing team's break. Um, I'm hoping that if they could, like, knock down the turnovers, that stack could be reversed. Um, the offensive rebounding thing is actually interesting too, because you would think with somebody as big as Embiid in the middle, or a team as focused on trying to get baskets at the rim with their centers like the Sixers, you would think they'd have more um, offensive rebounds. Um, I attribute it more to the turnovers than anything, but it is something that I think maybe we should look into more. You know, what what's the relationship between turnovers and fast break points versus offensive rebounds and fast break points? Okay. Um, is it is it is it mutually exclusive? I mean, I know the Bulls from the the good Bulls teams before um, all Derek Rose's injuries, they were always the top of the offensive rebounding with Boozer and Noah, and they were still a top three defensive team. You can do both. Um, and that team, I think also didn't turn the ball over much. They ran a very conservative offense. Uh, so there, there's relationships between preventing fast break points and turnovers as well as fast break points and offensive rebounding. So I think it's determining like what the relationships are between them. Um, maybe that's how you can attribute, uh, how to defend fast breaks better and how to get offensive rebounds. It's tilting. You, you try to tilt them all into 
the best equation you possibly can. Um, but the Sixers clearly are not doing that right now. Fair enough. All right. So uh, my last question for you, what do you think will be the 76ers first win of the season as you look through the schedule? Yeah. I mean, we've done this for now. Well, the first year of the Sixers under Brett Brown, they started three and zero, despite eventually having a 26 game losing streak in the same year. Mike, was that Michael Carter Williams player of the week? Something that was Michael Carter Williams, like, or first game rebounds and two rebounds and two steals or three steals away from a uh, quadruple double. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That was some time. Those were the Um, days. Yeah. When we thought Michael Carter Williams was our future star. About that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, So I believe Wednesday against the Pacers. So tomorrow for, um, for us now, um, Embiid is not scheduled to play. I think it's a scheduled off game. Even though it's not a back-to-back, they don't anticipate him making the trip. Okay. So I'm just not even going to count that as a potential win. Um, they return home the night before going to Atlanta, so Friday night. Um, I think that's their best chance. Atlanta or Indiana is hot and cold, um, and they don't seem very interested in defense right now. So I'm hoping that the Sixers, bad team, but with Embiid um, coming back, gets a team that's likely going to beat them on Wednesday night. Um, home crowd. I'm hoping that that is the first win. I think that's their best chance for a while. Road games in Atlanta and Houston, not good for the Sixers. Atlanta, the Hawks of any team, have made the Sixers look the worst since Brett Brown has took over as coach. And I don't know if it's because they run a similar system or they purport to run a similar system um, all under the Greg Popovich coaching tree. But the Hawks just make the Sixers look bad. And it's been that way for years. <laughs> if we go by the transitive property, the Spurs have absolutely beat the living daylights out of the Hawks for many, many years now. I, I'm not. Sh- I don't think Budenholzer has a regular season win over the Spurs yet, which is kind of fascinating when you look at that back and <laughs> It's like Popovich can always be Budenholzer. Budenholzer can always be Brown. It's like they they must know. They must have the dirt on each other somehow. They just know what to expect. Yep. That's yeah. funny. It must be that. Well, I have to agree with you. I was going to, you know, say yeah, what so I I'd thought say, yeah. was going to be the 76ers first win and I, I think it's going to be Friday. You know, you, you when you get the same opponent twice, that's that's always a, a good, you know, a good setup. It's so hard to beat the same team twice in a row and then you know, if you look at the second the second game of it, it's at home in Philly. You know, you're bringing Embiid into the equation. I just think that swings their factors their their way and and like you say, the Pacers are not playing very inspired basketball at the moment. Exactly. And I thought they'd be better, too. I did, too. Well, oh, well. Well, I have to say, thank you very, very much for uh, coming on. Uh, I hope uh, some of our Hawks fans will learn a little bit about the Sixers here before the game on Saturday. Fortunately, this one's not at 12 noon or 12.30 or whatever horrendous time the last <laughs> Hawks-Sixers game was. Yeah, you, you guys don't have a hockey team down there anymore, right? Because that's what happened. We uh, we shared the arena with the Philadelphia Flyers. So. Do, the, do the Winnipeg Jets count? Uh, <laughs> why not? <laughs> yeah, no hockey team. All right, well, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Oh, you too. Thanks for having me on.